What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Life Made Easy podcast. As usual, I'm Ben, and we have Scott and Tim, and today we're doing an interview day with Matt. Hey, everybody. Um, yeah, hey, uh, I'm Matt. Uh, I'm a professor at a small liberal arts college, and I do economics. Straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> so so we, start every, we start every episode off with question of the day. Uh, myself, Tim, and Ben have seen this question. Matt has not. So the question of the day that we're going to be answering, um, does pineapple belong on pizza? Hard yes. Just you, not even That was very yeah. firm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is, it is honest, my I've preferred topic. Had, I've never had <laughs> pineapple on pizza. Like, I'm open to it. Like, I'm going to be surprised if I like it because, like, fruit doesn't really – I don't think fruit belongs on pizza. But I don't know. So would you put mango on pizza? That's even weirder than pineapple to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole new world. I mean, pineapple, pineapple, I will just say salty and sweet, like savory and sweet. You add a little pineapple, it's great. Um, but the other tropical fruits, that, that could be a whole new thing. Um, might might want to try that out. I mean, think about it. You even put like pineapple on like ham sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So. What? <laughs> yeah, so Wine pizza. I, I see no issue with it. I've, I've had it before. It tastes fine. I mean, I don't, there's, there's always those people that are like firmly against it. And I, I kind of question like why they're so opinionated on a topic like that. Yeah. Especially if they haven't had it, you know? Exactly. I do love the memes about pineapple on pizza though. Yeah. There's some great memes. Are there a lot? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I might need to get involved. I might need to get, are there, are there pro pineapple memes? Like, can I, can I join that side and, and make some stuff? Not, that might be a new market. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is a SpongeBob meme for everything. Literally everything. <laughs> yes. I mean, I got to do something over summer break. If it's, if it's not research, at least some memes would be something productive. <laughs> yes. Yep. Um, so, so you got, okay. So how about Tim starts, then Ben, and then me in um, order of the questions. How, how about that? Got you. Okay. Um, so Matt, what was the origin of your love of economics and what do you think is the most interesting thing about economics? Um, the origin of my love of economics. So I guess the initial origin would have been uh, a high school economics class, but that like many high school economics classes was not really economics. Um, it was a fun class. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, taught by uh, a history professor who, you know, didn't know that much about economics and um, myself and a couple friends were, you know, end of senior year of high school. We were, you know, the smart kids. We kind of let us do whatever we wanted. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, it seemed easy and fun. So I took microeconomics my first semester in college. Uh, and I think... Now looking back, I think this says something terrible about me, <laughs> but I, I just went, oh yeah, this seems the way everybody thinks. You just do cost-benefit analysis for everything, right? Like that's the way everybody goes through life making decisions. Uh, and I, I think that's probably not the best way to go through life being like super rational in that way, but it sure made micro easy. And um, so uh, I just kept... You know, it was like, wow, this is easy. This is interesting. Um, 
kept doing it. Um, to be honest, I, I, you know, almost every academic subject is interesting to me in some way or another. I got really into history at the end of my undergraduate um, career. And if I had known about that, if I had taken history classes earlier, I might have been a history major. Um, but mm-hmm. so uh, it, it made sense. It was cool. Um, I think the second part, like like the most important or, or most relevant stuff is um, it is a nice way of making decisions. It is a nice like set of rules for decision making that give you some constraints. You still, you still need some outside things with goals, like what are the goals you're trying to accomplish, but it's a nice rule-based system for making decisions. And I personally like that. Like I'm attracted to the idea of finding some set of rules that will help make, um, make everything work well. Um, I'm definitely not, not a free-flowing chaos person. I, I like a little bit of order and, and it provides that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben, I think you can relate to that whole idea of like people enjoy having structure. Uh, for example, in probability, when you first start off the course and there's no structure, there's no formulas for every, anything. It's just, here's a, here's a probability question, answer it using like intuition. Literally like one day after class, like I went up to John just like, and I was like, if I'm bad at this, uh, is this like, should I not be an actuarial science major? Like, he's like, no, this is like, I'm throwing you to the wolves. Like, this is awful. It gets easier. I was like, can you make it easier tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's fun. That's the, that's the see if you can invent all of probability on your own in the first week of class. Um, yeah. you know. It was like first three weeks, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like crushed my morals. Anyway, <laughs> same. <laughs> same. <laughs> Made you want to be a good class. Um, that's that means the professor's doing their job. I mean, you gotta you gotta feel a little lost before you then start rebuilding it up back. Right, up. right. Yeah. So we established why you love economics, but why did you become a teacher, and specifically, why did you become a college professor? Also, so <laughs> I think a lot of these answers might come down to I'm uh, lazy slash find the path of least resistance. Uh, I definitely um, accidentally went to grad school. <laughs> like I was, you know, it was my senior year and I hadn't thought of what I was going to do after college. So I applied for some jobs and then I decided you know, really late to try to get into grad school. Like, I think I went to my college's career office in October of my senior year and said, yeah, I think I'm just going to maybe try for grad school. And they went, you needed to have been thinking about this way before now. Like, how are you going to pick the schools? Like, you need to take GREs. And I just kind of went, I'll just just search online for a couple programs, apply. Um, Applied to master's programs. Uh, actually, because I wasn't thinking academia or anything. I was just basically trying to put off the getting a job process. Uh, One of the master's programs at Clemson University sort of called me up and said, "Um, you're in, but, you know, we only fund PhD students and we'd accept you to the PhD program if you switched over uh, to be a PhD candidate. Uh, I did that. I did a year and a half and really kind of hated it. And so I quit. 
with a master's. You can get a master's sort of en route to a PhD. So I quit after a year and a half of the master's and worked some random jobs. So I worked at a bookstore in Manhattan for a little bit, and then I didn't like that. So I quit that and did an internship in the parks, um, which was super awesome, but seems like it was not going to translate into a real job unless I had you know, a science background. Uh, so I think it was sort of, I don't really like most jobs. I really don't like office work. Um, and so after doing that and not really feeling that there was anything good, uh, academia looked a little bit better. And so I went back with the intent of being a professor, having never done it, which was a little hard um, to, you know, hopefully just sort of hoping that I would like it. Um, I did. And so uh, it's been really enjoyable. You know, it's, it's a version of being sort of self-employed without as overwhelming, like existential stress of being self-employed. Um, you know, my parents own a small business and it's just so stressful that like your entire livelihood could be very easily taken away very quickly that's true with any job, but it's a little less true in academia. Um, but you still are pretty pretty in charge of your own schedule, pretty in charge of what you do, which is really nice. You don't have to dress up. It's great. Uh, and college teaching uh, is nice because, you know, I think sometimes about like, what if I taught high school or something like that? But um, you're not responsible for discipline. So I don't have to worry if like people are doing something that, I don't know, right? Like, like if somebody's like, oh, you know, they swear or they're like, we were drinking. I can just be like, I don't, I don't care. That's your problem. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not responsible for the, um, you know, day to day making sure you're following, you know, those rules situation. Um, and and it's exciting. You get to talk to people. All, you talk to new people all the time. You're always meeting people every day. You know, there's a routine and there's a schedule, but every day is still a little different. You talk about different stuff each day teach different classes, you get to sort of refresh yourself on, on new topics or even learn new topics for, for a new class. Um, so it, it keeps things moving and it's not the same thing over and over, which is also a really nice thing in a job. Wow. I kind of want to be a professor now. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that sounds so fun. <laughs> Yeah, it is, it is a bit of a, I mean, it is in decline. Like it's becoming more like other regular jobs. I think, you know, the, the 70s were a great, probably a really great time to be a professor. I think you could do whatever. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's becoming a little more systematized now. Um, gotcha. But still, relative to other things, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty good gig. And you have, to, you have to think about like how big of an impact you have on students' lives and then how that translates into students going into the real world, like graduating from college. Think about, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's scary, but it's also, what did, what did, what did he said it was humbling, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is. I mean, it, I think it is a little scary because there's always this, you know, if I'm doing but I mean, you're always not doing the absolute best job. Like perfection's unattainable. So if I'm doing 10% right. worse than I otherwise could be, am I, you know, actively harming some people? Uh, you know, and, and hope, hopefully not. And you sort of take perspective of doing the best you can and, and constantly improving. But yeah, it is. Um, it, you know, and, and 
who knows? I don't know how much people sitting in the class, especially like an intro class, remember or take something away, but, you know, hopefully small nudges and, and you know, for a few people, my classes are things that stick with them, um, hopefully. I mean, Tim, we, we loved like intro to micro and macro, right? They were so fun. They are so fun. Yeah. Were you, guys, you guys were in both of yeah. my yes. first year classes, right? Okay, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, the macro was in the strong... giant auditorium, which was ridiculous. <laughs> you have a strong micro-macro preference. I do. I'm very micro. Um, <laughs> I'm very, very strongly micro. Um, macro is... It's still a little... It's... It's like a, it's a ma it's it's magic tricks that I'm still like sometimes still at macro have like okay I I I can do that trick I'm still not always a hundred percent sure of why it works um, with macro but micro is just yeah micro is what I what I the way my brain works so it fits more easily yeah I transferred to our school so I took micro macro at my previous school. Mm -hmm. Literally, like, there's no chance I'm taking an econ class <laughs> ever. <laughs> and uh, not because, not because I don't like it. Like, I, really, <laughs> I really like econ, but yeah. it's like it's not gonna fit, and it's like not required. Right. Like, it's not right. gonna happen. Right. I've had a lot of experience with different departments, but um, at our at our liberal arts school, at least the economics department, phenomenal professors all across. I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, this department takes a lot of um, sort of pride in that. And, and also it's, you know, different departments, different things, you know, economists have a, are, are blessed to have like a pretty wide range of, of options. Um, so you can go into government work, you can go into industry work. Um, so people who end up at a liberal arts college who have PhDs in economics usually have some serious interest in teaching. Um, you know, it, it's going to be less likely that this was just, you know, the only job available. And so that's why I was taken. So, but yeah, the, the department that we're, that we're in um, really, you know, all take pride in teaching and talk to each other about teaching all the time, like always sharing ideas and, and trying to see what works and what doesn't work and keep up to date with new sort of pedagogical stuff um, all the time. Um, yeah, I guess we can move into the next question now. This is a good question, actually. So what, what makes a great teacher? And then after you talk about that, what, what makes a poor teacher? <laughs> Students always yeah. want to know about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know that you can necessarily... So that they that they are really are two separate questions, right? It's, 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 it's one question about these things and it's pretty hard to define I think and and perhaps in some ways that's really good I'm kind of happy if it's somewhat hard to define like if it if it becomes very easy to define then um, that relates towards the job just becoming more of a checklist of do this do that uh, it's nice that it feels like there's a bit of art to it in that you don't actually always know in advance if something's going to work, but you can kind of tell when you're doing it, oh, this is working or, oh, this is not working. Um, and so, I, you know, 
great versus poor it varies like even even within things it varies like i have classes that i know are just like oh, this was not you know this was not a particularly interesting class this class didn't go super well at all um certainly individual classes but even courses and then some classes class days or courses where i just feel like yeah that was awesome like everybody got a lot out of that that was great so i think overall it's you know it, there does have to be an interest in teaching there has to be an interest in in learning in in how people learn um in thinking about um you know the empathy of you know not not necessarily feeling empathy but being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and like you know students sitting in a class how do they learn um am i doing things for them and not for me which can be hard uh grading's grading's a pretty miserable experience so there's often a lot of like you know i mean i can do things that make my life easier and sometimes that's necessary but uh you know trying to keep the students mind not necessarily in meaning like add a ton of stuff that to be graded but but you know adding experiences at least um that might take some work and so yeah i think an interest in in learning and how people learn um there is you need a little bit of humility and and humbleness because you definitely do things that go terribly wrong and so the ability to look at that and not um take it personally when it when it goes really really wrong or poorly um you know i've i've scrapped stuff in the middle of classes uh, that i've been doing um because it because it was clearly not working um so that and then you know i right i'm pretty non hierarchical in the way that i do things i'm not i i don't really think that like um keeping a really strong separation like from the professor to the student is super helpful. I think it's better if you sort of connect on a personal level. And that's why I like liberal arts colleges, you know, like I'm a liberal arts college product through and through um because I do think that personal connection matters a lot to do those things, to be able to sort of think about how the people who are learning in the class are learning, you need to know them at least a little. Um so the good versus not good it, it ultimately like interest and then work like it just work like you know it, it, you have to work at it um you know i think some people assume that you just either have it or don't you just get up one day and you can talk and everybody thinks it's interesting or you're bad um but i don't think that's true i think people improve their teaching a lot if they have interest and are willing to do the work I don't know what like what what is what what is you guys's perspective on that like you're you're the the ones oh. who actually get to see a lot more I mean it's been a long time since I've seen it right we right. just um, got the the supply side perspective now let's right. get the demand side <laughs> right yeah, yeah exactly yes. oh my gosh I'm so good at this this is why you should never take an economics class right like you'll start saying things like that yeah so. um Tim you can go first I guess I I said a similar thing when we were uh interviewing John. Um the most important thing is that the professor is interested and engaged because when the professor is excited about the material that is contagious to the students and they get excited about the material. Um 
I've been in so many classes where it seemed like, when will I ever use this? And then like three years later, I'm using it and I'm like, wait, I remember thinking that'll never be applicable. So like I've realized basically over the years that there's no education that's truly worthless. Um, so just that excitement and like applications of the material is what helps me get excited about it and stay engaged. Okay, I'll go next. You know, I agree with everything Tim just said. Uh, the teacher definitely has to have a passion for the subject matter they're teaching. Um, they have to be willing to connect with you on a personal level, um, like be able to go talk after class and stuff like that. Um, and even discuss, uh, like, because John does this a lot. Um, it's just like even being able to, like, go to your professor and talk about even, like, personal issues sometimes. I think that can be very beneficial to connect. Um, but some like real practical things I've noticed. It's like, I can't stand professors and teachers that are just like stiff, like stiff as a board, like no fun, like in the way they teach. Like you need, you need some uniqueness in the style of teaching um, or else like everyone in the class is just not gonna care and it's just, they're gonna fall asleep. You gotta, you gotta be exciting. Yeah. But, I was just the other day listening to um, some learning science research or whatever. And they said that people who put like memes up in class, like, you know, they, I think this test was like some PowerPoints and then some PowerPoints, you know, where you have this topic and then there's a meme like, or a funny joke or a YouTube clip or something like that, um, that people learn worse with the memes. And I don't, I don't, I'm still dubious, but they were like, you know, they did, you know, take something where they take two classes or two, you know, sections of a class with PowerPoint slides and add memes or not and see how people do on tests and things like that. And they said they did worse, which, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm questioning the result because that takes the fun out. But, um, yeah. I mean, well, I, ca yeah. I kind of get it. Like, I think you should be fun and stuff, but, like, I think memes can be distracting, you know, like a little bit. Um, like we find them fun, but like only when we're like scrolling through our phones or whatever, like on TikTok or Instagram, I don't know. Yeah. It's like a mindless activity rather than, uh, having fun, I guess. Mm -hmm. to I want to see the regression. Right. Yeah. I don't buy it. I don't, I don't buy it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I buy it. <laughs> um, I think, well, I agree with Tim and Scott. Like, uh, I think. Personally, I think the first day is very important. Like, right. um, being energetic on the first day, like doing something fun, like it's syllabus day. Like everybody hates syllabus day. Like it's a waste of time. But like, just doing something a little fun, or like, like John does like note cards. He like has you write down your name, like favorite TV show, like something like that, just to get the class talking. Not even necessarily to him, but like to each other. Just um, not even excited for the content of the class yet but like just excited to come back the next day or two days later or whatever that's uh that's really important because building a rapport wow that's a really advanced word i'm surprised i used that in a sentence building a rapport with the students word <laughs> gre word yeah. gre that was like freshman year anyway um so humble building rapport with the students <laughs> as a group and then like in office hours more individually um I think that's very important. Office hours are definitely a lot of fun if you do it right. Yeah, and that's man. why 
it's important to like go to office hours in the first place. Right. Yeah. Right. And many people don't, which is, which is odd, especially at schools where, you know, everybody has them and, and wants you to come. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember like starting out as a freshman, I didn't used to go to office hours as much, but then I realized once I did start going, I found it like extremely beneficial, not only academically helping with um, just getting a better knowledge of the subject in the class, but <laughs> just connecting with the teachers, like really helpful. And that, that's something, that's something um, I spoke to a prospective student coming, looking at her school. And that, that's one of the things I talked to her about is like, you really, you really need to connect with your teachers. It, it's, it's very helpful um, going forward. And, and, and just like helping in general with like networking and stuff. And it's not yeah. even hard at our school. Like it's so small. No. Like other schools, you have like lecture halls, like 200 kids. Like that does not happen at our school. Mm-hmm. Like it's so small. Like most kids have had like maybe 21, 22. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, but you know, even in class, even, even in classes that are small, you still like the, the office hours are nice because you do actually get to spend two or three minutes just sort of, you know, where are you from or what do you like? Or, or, you know, you, this yeah. sort of interaction that you sometimes have like before class starts and, and, and you know, in the lecture and stuff, but, mm-hmm. but the office hours are nice. And, um, and that's the kind of stuff that, uh, is, is, you know, is just really useful in getting to know from the professor side of things, getting to know what sort of stuff is your, your students are looking to get out of things or, or where they're coming from. Um, just, just, it is just useful to sort of triangulate what you're doing to try to make it fit better with what the people in the class are looking for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And crack, cracking jokes during class is very, very helpful. Absolutely. Like I have so much fun with John in class. Like literally I got there in class one day before he was, I literally went up to the board and wrote on the board. I wrote a pun. Oh, what was it? it was uh, puns make me numb, but math puns make me number. Oh, that was so cringe. He walked, in, <laughs> he walked in, put his stuff down, read it, looked at me and goes, did you write that? Yeah. <laughs> we had so much fun that day. Oh man, I taught after him a couple, I was last year, it must have been spring 2019 or something, I taught in a class right after him, so we would pass each other on the way, um, you know, going back and forth. Um, it was it was funny, because yeah, there was a lot of um, heckling his students, like as he, as he was leaving, he'd, he'd be sort of like making fun of them a little bit about stuff, or, or joking with them, and then and then some pretty terrible puns usually, um, you know, that he would make oh as, we, as we passed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think all students can agree. Like, we love, and, and Matt does this all the time, it's like students love being roasted and insulted by the professor. I don't know why, <laughs> I don't know why more professors don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you gotta be a little careful. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, you gotta be a little careful, right? Like, yeah. I mean, gotta know which students. I think. Yeah, 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 and even and even then, like sometimes you know, you just like misphrase something, and like I don't know, like there are definitely times when I've, you know, will be in my office after a class and being like, 
I hope that everybody like got that that was a joke. Like, like yeah. I, you know, like I may, that might have just been said something really, really mean. I don't know. <laughs> so I think we've been talking for a little while about what makes a professor great. So on the other side of the coin, what makes a student stand out? Uh, um, interesting. So I think, I think that there's, you know, interest, interest is, is a pretty big thing. Like it, it's pretty hard to, to teach classes where, uh, you get a lot of, you know, two thirds of the class that are, um, clearly not not there and not present and and i you know i and i think every professor understand that it, it is hard we you know i am old but still have been in classes relatively recently and you know was drinking multiple five-hour energies to try to stay awake through my econometrics classes in grad school and definitely you know did a lot of like zoning out um but um so, so not necessarily can blame, but, but it is so much, you know, more pleasant to teach to some people who are, um, you know, actively interested in what's going on. Um, so, so in class, there's that sort of stuff and asking questions, even if it's not, you know, um, deep questions or anything like just being active is super nice. It makes it a much more enjoyable experience for everybody. Um, and then more broadly, um, you know, it's still that just bigger. Like if anytime anybody says like, you know, this thing that was talked about in class, does it relate to this other thing? Uh, even if it's, even if the result is, you know, the answer to that question is ultimately like, well, probably not. It's still like just a super interesting thing to think about. And, and sometimes those connections are there and it's super cool. Um, so, so see, you know, anybody who's actually sort of like engaging with things from a just like knowledge level, just like, oh, this is interesting. It's interesting to know a little bit more than I did before and to try to think about how I might learn. Um, it's pretty cool to work with, um, you know, and, and to be around. Um, so it's mostly that. It's mostly just having interest and, and like, you know, enjoying learning is, is what I, you know, seek most and, and enjoy most um, about students. Mm -hmm. random question but have you ever fallen asleep in a class uh as a or like as, you a, know, as a student as a student uh, yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have many times okay <laughs> tim do you, you want to talk about that <laughs> okay so i learned some things about myself freshman year yeah, that yeah, I have continued with through the rest of college. There are hours I just should not take classes. It's just a bad idea. And you know what? It's been great ever since I learned that lesson. Matt's like, I remember. There, there were there were a couple times. You, I feel like you started out really strong at the in the fall, and then and then sometime in the spring semester there was some some sleepiness. Because the fall it was an afternoon class, but then right. in the spring it was it was early morning. I see. Okay. How early? Eight. It was nine fifteen. Nine fifty. Nine fifty. Yeah. Nine fifty. Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. Tuesday, Thursday, you, so it was nine fifty. Yeah. You guys also remember my roommate freshman year? Oh, true. Yeah, true. Nine fifty <laughs> was early. Yeah, yeah. But 
But yeah. didn't you? It say- was loud late into the night, like one a.m. Usually, at least. Yeah. Y'all leave at Fortnite. Okay. Okay, but Tim, I wanna. I, w- I want to argue here that you said that you would join our game theory course that was at 9, 10 in the morning. I have a question. Did I ever join that class? No, you didn't, but you <laughs> wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. morning, morning classes are, are tough. Although, although I, I, so yeah, I mean, up until mid grad school like waking up by noon was was a a win for me um i would roll into like our grad lounge at you know 11 and everybody would cheer um but now i've realized my my brain it's at its peak performance the second i woke up and it just declines from then on like it just drops off i taught a night class the first semester i was at um this this school one of these 6 p.m classes oh that was terrible i cannot cannot form an interesting thought at, after after dark like at the end of you know in the winter semester oh honestly rough. even if you could yeah. form an interesting thought we probably couldn't pick it up <laughs> right. Most six, yes. six yes. to nine p.m classes or six to eight fifty-five or whatever that's a yeah. stupid time first of all yeah. secondly it's just like so pointless like we learn next to nothing yeah they're tough classes i mean yeah, i was i was shocked when i was when i you know, it was just assigned to me because uh, I, you know, it was my first semester here. And I was like, wow, this is not good. Can't yeah. do this again. <laughs> right. And you have no authority over what times you teach, correct? No, um, we, we do. Uh, so, so I didn't then because um, the schedules, you know, are, get created to the semester in advance. So, so that was, um, you know, those slots were picked for incoming economics professor, who, uh, whoever it was. Um, but uh, you know the department. Each department gets a set number of slots, um, and then within the department, you sort of sort out um, who gets what. And some sometimes everybody wants the same times. Um, sometimes not. Like like we often we've had we all kind of like in the economics department Tuesday Thursdays. So there's been some like like Monday Wednesday Friday this year for me was you know taking one for the team, but. Um, yeah, you know, we we collectively the department sort of sorts out who's who's getting what what spots. Um, you know, and then us. the last one on the table is the six to nine, and you guys all have to who's who's going to do it. <laughs> well, you know, you, you can usually get away without doing one if you want to. Um, there's a, like you get enough spots that are um, you know you get like two or three spots at every time in the calendar. Um, so some people actually like six to nines. Some people pick them voluntarily. Um, mm-hmm. I think because right. The once a week is, is nice, but um, yeah, no, not me unless I find something, some like totally wild class to fit in there. But other than that, no economics of memes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would just make that research question implode. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. the whole class is talking about memes. <laughs> yeah. Isn't there a subreddit called the meme economy? Isn't isn't that like uh, a whole thing? I, I believe face it is. Like lit up. <laughs> I'll ha- I have to find that. I'll admit I'm really bad at Reddit. But yeah. I'm- We'll link it in the description. <laughs> yeah. If we find it. No, I think they have like a simulated like stock market of memes on, on Reddit somehow. <laughs> like I don't I don't know exactly how, but 
something like that. So like every time that somebody posts like a specific SpongeBob meme, the price of SpongeBob memes goes up. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but I think, you know they've got all these like different bots that let you be like bot yeah buy SpongeBob or like whatever. Uh, yeah. I would so like if that was a real thing. I would absolutely <laughs> invest in SpongeBob meme because like what yeah, I said earlier, there's a SpongeBob meme for everything. So if it was like SpongeBob meme stock, like yes, buy. <laughs> okay, moving on. So. Similar, sort of similar to the last question, how can a student best succeed in economics specifically? I think it's a lot of the things that we've sort of discussed, you know, nobody expects you to get everything on your own. Um, I think that there's, you know, a judicious use of like, knowing how to try something for a while yourself and then asking for help on it. Um, but so that, and, and always thinking about applications, always thinking about where something, some idea could be applied. Um, Cause you know, basic theory is, is often kind of abstract. And so it's, it's not always directly applicable to things. Um, but questioning that sort of stuff, um, you know, linking it to other things and then questioning, you know, does this always seem true? Where are areas where things don't seem true? A, a lot of things that economists do is just kind of being obstinate and trying to find falsifications of things. Um, so sort of always like when you're presented with information, questioning it, going, okay, somebody just said that, you know, professor just said this, is this always true? Um, you know, you can probably think of examples of it's not, not, not raising all of them, right? Because, you know, there are often things that you want to sit stew on for, for a little bit um, to, to mm -hmm. consider. But um, yeah, I think, you know, seeking connections, like, like trying to make connections everywhere as much as possible um, and, and asking, you know, being well, sort of well-rounded it's economics is a discipline where the, sort of values a little bit of breadth of knowledge, like reading the news, um, being aware of what's going on, um, you know, politics in the world, um, because the idea is that economics um, is applicable in all these different situations. And so it is really the exercise is just um, trying to be super well-informed about stuff and, and think about why people in whatever decision are making the choices that they are, um, you know, it, so that's good exercise, and I think I think it is sort of the kind of thing where you can memorize theory all you want, but it really is just using it and thinking about it, and it's it's a way of sort of thinking that just gets better as you practice. That it. it's sort of like a a sport or or a skill of some form where you, where you just want to practice. Gotcha. The I'm curious your mind is use it or lose it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm curious. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. You're good. I'm curious your opinion. Uh, ben and Scott can definitely attest to this. Anybody who's like not sure about their major, I'm always like, try economics. You will love it. <laughs> um, but for me, the hardest two classes that I think I took in a, that I've taken in economics so far through undergrad were intro, micro, and macro. And it was just because 
there's a lot of like reorienting your brain to think in economic models. Like, um, even like the simple things like supply and demand that like now I use on like a day to day basis, everything seems to build in economics off of other things. And even if it doesn't build directly, they're tied together. So the hardest thing was reorienting my brain to think like an economist. And a lot of that happened in intro micro and macro, Mm -hmm. but then after that, it gets better. And I think a lot of people struggle through intro micro and macro and say, it's just going to keep getting harder when even though the subject material does get more complicated, I think it's easier to build on now that there's like that strong foundation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, you know, it's interesting. You guys now at this point in time have more familiarity with like what other disciplines do. Um, but it is interesting when I talk to people in other sort of academic disciplines, um, the extent to which some of them are like, you know, a very linear building on, building on always until you get to the end. And some are just sort of like, no, you know, like you could walk into any, our classes don't really have prerequisites. You could walk into any of them and it's just a slightly, you know, it's a different version of, of, but the same, um, you know, overarching idea, but there's not like a set of tools that you need. So it is, uh, I definitely do think the intros are, yeah. I mean, we're always trying to work on this. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're actually sort of launching a new version of an intro class next year, um, at at our school, uh, that is more, applied um but the intros do hit kind of hard with some theory that can seem somewhat abstract but that is the building block for everything else that comes next and and there is a lot of concern that maybe that's not the way to teach this maybe it's not right to go here's some abstract stuff learn that and then you'll get to apply it to more concrete situations um so that's actually what we're trying to do. we're trying this is a wave actually it's coming out of stuff that um the economist raj Chetty's doing at harvard um where harvard just introduced a new introductory economics class that's all sort of applied data so it's all like here's a question um how would an economist answer that question um, and we're going to do a version of that um at our school, it's going to be economics 150 with no prerequisites. That's going to be something similar. So it might be, you know, take a political debate that's happening at any point in time, right? Like um, $15 minimum wage, right? And just sort of go, well, this is a thing people are discussing. Um, here's how an economist would look at this. Um, here's the data we would collect. Here's the, you know, like in here's some actual data, do some analysis and see, um, to try to make it more applied. Um, but yeah, if you're not sure of your major, at least take an economics class, right? That, that, that is, uh, it's good foundational, um, mix of quantitative, um, knowledge and decision-making with some, you know, um, there's still, there's still liberal arts sort of, critical thinking and, and qual- there's still qual- qualitative aspect to it. So it has both qualitative mm-hmm. and quantitative, which is nice. Um, okay. Yeah, I'll, cool. I'll take the next question. Um, so yeah, we've already discussed economics as a whole a little, um, maybe focus on the second half of this question. Maybe like 
why is it useful in society or like when is it useful in society and then when is it not useful in society? I think it's uh, most useful when you have a defined goal. And the flip side of that is that I think economics is least useful when you just sort of go, here's society, um, take economics to solve some problems. I think it works best if you say, we've got this problem, we'd like to solve it while meeting these criteria, like these goals, X, Y, Z. Um, it can tell you the best way of doing that at you know lowest opportunity cost, uh, most efficient use of resources and things like that. But it's not a tool that's especially great at coming up with the goals. Um, I think I think economists should be involved in that discussion, but um, so you know, as a, as a practical matter, economists are really good at you know telling you how to maximize GDP. Um, nobody ever actually had the discussion of is maximizing GDP our social goal? Like you know, somebody should have had that discussion, or or you know, maybe we want to maximize something else instead. I want to maximize leisure time. Um, I want other people, you know, but, um, right. Like, um, but we should have a decision over what that goal is. And then once we've got that goal, economics is well applied. So I think it's best applied to a little bit more specific areas, um, specific problems rather than just turning it loose on, on anything, um, without, at least coming up with some sense of what a good solution would look like in advance or, or what we would want a solution to look like in advance, you know, um, or what criteria we want a solution to meet in advance. Gotcha. Um, I'm just curious, have you heard of that new economics book that just came out? It's called Economic Dignity by, uh, what's his name? Gene S Sterling? Sperling? What's his name? I have not. I have not. It uh, he worked under the Obama administration. Gene. Yeah. Gene Sperling, American economic economist. Um, yeah. He, so he just wrote this book about economic dignity in that maybe don't measure the success of our economy based on GDP, but actually like the dignity of its people. Which I felt, I found really interesting. Let's go get, Tim, you should definitely yeah, pick it up. Yeah, the, the hard part of all these <laughs> That's things very is like, yay. how do you measure dignity, right? Like, like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Andrew Yang's like dropped out a little too soon, right? Now, now universal basic income is uh, super. Uh, like everybody's just talking about it all the time now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the hard part is measuring dignity, right? Like, like um, the economic models work really well for for doing stuff when you have a quantifiable outcome um which is why gdp's sort of become the dominant thing is it's very easily quantifiable and so nice clean answers with no no fuzziness around the edges um but yeah and and you know gdp seems to be becoming worse over time as a measure as sort of the um externalities of production and consumption seem to be getting larger, which makes GDP a worse measure of well-being. Um, some things got to give, but all the alternatives do suffer from the problem of like numeric measurement. Um, if you don't use numeric measurement, it's kind of hard to, you know, 
say how well you're doing or anything right. like that. And, and a lot of these things are like lofty goals that don't lend themselves to numeric measurement, right? Like dignity is, it's kind of an, I know it when I see it type thing, which um, is hard to apply to 340 million people or whatever as a, you know, not nationwide metric, but, but I do think that's the way to go. I think that's the path that, that is where we need to be going. Too. All right, I'm up. So why do you think game theory and behavioral economics are becoming more mainstream? What makes uh, these subsections of economics so interesting? I think, so I think behavioral economics is just sort of where, where things had to go. Um, the sort of typical economic theory of, of rational individuals making choices kind of reached the end of their line with that. Like, you know, if you read any new like microeconomic research, it's so tiny, these tiny specific little jumps in the literature um, that it's hard to see the practical value at this point in time. Like, like, you know, you're doing stuff of like, how somebody makes a decision when they have, you know, asymmetric information. So they lack full information, but they have three people around them who have half information and how do they copy that? Like it's just gotten so divorced from reality um, that it had to move away from it. Um, so I think, you know, like the, the early Economics was really useful in attaching a rational model to things, sort of systematizing. This is the way people behave. And if you have this really pretty simple model of how people behave, you can make a lot of useful predictions. And that's still pretty good overall, right? Like I can still tell you why there's no toilet paper in the middle of the pandemic using that model. Um, but, you know, when you start drilling it down into fine-grained things like why did I pick the job that I had and, you know, if giving me one more dollar somewhere else would have caused me to change my behavior. Uh, it doesn't hold up that well. And since you're talking about these specific choices, um, a model that doesn't hold up at that level of specificity is unlikely to work. So I think behavioral just sort of going, yeah, but people don't behave this way all the time was, was an obvious um, area to go. And I don't know how much further we'll go with behavioral. I, 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 you know, it's now everybody sort of accounts for it. Um, you know, the idea that people are, are not rational in some um, unusual ways, but it's still behavioral economics still says that people are not rational in predictable ways for the most part, um, right? They're still systematizing that we have these things like loss aversion or mm -hmm. um, ambiguity aversion, things like that. Um, I don't know if somebody's going to, if the next step is to like build in chaos economics. Um, I mean, we already have, you know, random errors built into stuff now, but I don't know if there's some version of chaos that's more than that. Um, but so I think behavioral is just sort of the natural progression of the model. You couldn't keep going with the rational choice model. You needed to exp allow a little bit more leeway in it. Game theory, I'm not sure. So I'm, I'm not sure that I would necessarily agree that game theory is becoming more prevalent within economics. Um, mm -hmm. You know, game theory took off post-World War II in economics, and I think um, 
it's useful because it you know computationally we have more power now and so when you're modeling stuff you know game theory allows you to have more than just one person making a decision and you can interplay decisions against each other so it's more realistic in that way um, i think behavioral game theory is, is where that's going so the behavioral economics is getting into the game theory um, why game theory seems to uh, it does seem to be becoming popularly more um, impressive and i think I'm not sure. I, I think maybe like the business world is was lagging in sort of the rationalization of business. Um, you know, economists have long sort of said businesses are profit maximizing and they take these behaviors that maximize profits. Um, that doesn't actually correspond to what a lot of CEOs do. It doesn't seem like they're, you know, always super cold, hard, rational. Um, sometimes they do stuff out of like pride and, um, you know, or, or to make decisions to protect workers at the cost of profits some period of time. Um, and so I think there was actually, you know, business was a little bit later than economics. Like, you know, in the 70s and 80s, people were like coming up with these systems for running companies, whereas in the 50s and 60s, when economists were already doing rational game theory models, probably most business books were just like, I don't know. I'm good at it. So I'm, that's why I'm a CEO and this is my method. Like I'm good at being a CEO. Um, so I think that it's sort of trickled down into that as here's a set of rules that you could use to run a business um, that would be rational. I don't think businesses actually really operate according to game theoretic uh, models super, you know, frequently um, or that it's even necessarily the right way to go. But um, I think that to any extent, and, you know, game theory is fun. It's, it's like enjoyable to do and computational power has greatly increased the, what you can do with it. Um, you know, it's, it's computationally difficult to sort of simulate multiple decision makers interacting with each other. And so there's been a lot, um, a lot of new stuff with computing technologies being able to simulate like, you know, what if you have a thousand people interacting with each other? Um, and so, so maybe there's some of that just driven by cheaper computational power, but in economics, at least game theory, I think has sort of, um, pro I wouldn't say it's, it's peaked. Um, it's still super prominent, but it, but it, I would say it is probably peaked at this point in time. Mm -hmm. I will say that um, I know that the current pandemic has kind of changed everything with the whole curriculum and education system having to move uh, remote. But I will say that game theory, it was definitely one of my favorite classes that I've ever taken. That's good to hear. I, I like the class a lot. I'm still tweaking. I'm actually, I think I'm going to redesign this summer on that class, but um, it's, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's definitely the most fun thing that I, that I, teach i find it a lot of fun um but yeah it's um it's different right it's it's very it's super rational and so i'm not it's applicable in some narrow ways but i, I don't know that i would want to live life like a game theorist too much <laughs> you're the game theory professor yeah yeah okay <laughs> because <laughs> I did not make that connection, but like Scott came to Tim with like one of your homeworks or whatever. Yeah, oh, yeah, the, yeah. Who's the wolf one? Yeah. And then... In the lemonade one. And the yep. what? 
and the lemonade stands. Oh, the lemonade yeah. stand one, yeah. And yeah. then Tim came to me with Scott's homework. <laughs> I wasn't even in the room, and Tim and I were like discussing your homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tim was popping up uh, in office hours and, and otherwise, um, yeah. despite not being enrolled in the class. <laughs> I was going to go to your office hours, but I had class during your uh, office hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but like, what are your thoughts on that? That a student is taking time out of his normal day when he doesn't have class to go. Sp- uh, learn he more. He never has class. It, well, yeah, he never has class. Max. But like, <laughs> uh, he's taking his time to learn a new subject that he finds interesting. Well, I think that, I, I mean it's awesome. I, I like it a lot. I also like. I'm worried that game theory is just like a little too. Um, I don't know, a little too like flashy and and just like fun logic puzzles, and that maybe you know your time would be better spent on I should know what classes you were in this this spring, but um calculus <laughs> or or whatever something but um you know or or like a a Francisca you know some sort of like ethics or or religion class um but uh it is i mean there are they are like a pretty distilled, I, I mean, at least to me, not to everybody, but, you know, obviously to some people, it is like a little distilled puzzle riddle type thing um, that gives you a pretty big little in- dose of endorphins or whatever when you get it, when you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah I see it now, um, which which you don't always get with other um, either disciplines or pursuits of knowledge. You don't always get like a, Clearly, I know it. You get a like. I think this is you know how these things piece together. But it's so it, so it's nice in that there's clear right answers, and so it's a hard thing to do. But then there's a very clear like, yep, I got it, or no, I didn't. Um, it's, it's less fuzzy. But that might be a strike against it. I mean, the world is fuzzy, right? The world rarely actually has totally boom right answers or not. So um, there, it's it's a snack. I don't know. I don't know that I would eat it as my full meal. Game theory. It's potato chips. Like enjoy in small mm-hmm. in small doses. I was just thinking about the lemonade stand question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was uh, like, wait, what was the solution to that again? <laughs> I think it was. Uh, stack it was one on each end and two in the middle. No, no, no. It was no. Stack them for the Wasn't four it? person one. It was stack them at one fourth and three fourths. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. For four people. Um, Oh, yeah, my bad. The yeah. first time that we attempted it, it was one on each end and two in the middle. Right, <laughs> and then I'm we about. went with two, one third and two thirds or something like that. Yeah, we tried that. That That's what got us toward the solution. And then, yeah, one fourth. Yeah, um, and I mean, that that's like actually, you know, that, that model, the median voter model or hotelings model is, is actually like, you know, again, I wouldn't use it to explain everything, but it's plausible as explained explaining things that happen in politics and stuff like you know you look at the sort of democratic primary and it was all um, focused on electability and and who can appeal to sort of the middle right like to some independents and and moderate um, democrats or republicans um, right it was very much a don't pick people at the extreme right an idea that you just got to pick somebody close to the middle and they'll garner, garner the most votes. So, so it, you know, it doesn't explain everything, but it is useful for some stuff like that. And can, can you just give me like a 30 second to minute explain or your opinion on how useful Nash equilibrium is? 
<laughs> I think Nash equilibrium is not terribly useful. It requires a lot of computational work on the part of the people playing the game. So I think it's only useful in situations where people have like clear dominant strategies that they should always pick. And in that case, why do I even need the idea of a Nash equilibrium? Just go with people play dominant strategies. Like if you have a choice, it's always better. You're going to do it. So I, I don't think it's terribly useful. I think it's super elegant and it's nice, but I don't think it's the most useful concept. So are you, are you more of a fan of uh, maybe the highest payoff for, or like the efficient, the efficient solution for everyone? I, th uh, I think we should seek that. I don't know how we're going to get there. So I think that the, you know, the Nash equilibrium is just, it's a, in my opinion, a poor attempt at predicting what people will do. I think in terms of better predictions, stuff like the, the level K where you're just sort of looking around at people around you and doing a best guess of what they're going to do and responding to that um, is probably a better way of predicting what will happen. And yeah, we should seek the most efficient thing, you know, highest payoffs for everybody involved. And that's where um, actually, you know, behavioral economics can come in with stuff like the nudging and you know, things like that, like making that option more obvious um, or, you know, social norms do a lot of work too, to sort of create situations where I, I am invested in the people I'm engaging with success and want the highest total payoff for this group. Like I feel like we're all in it together. I find that answer really funny because like throughout multiple conversations on random days, Tim and Scott are constantly like, what's the Nash equilibrium of that? I'm like, what is a Nash equilibrium? <laughs> oh no. Oh no. I had a student like right I think the first time I taught this at this school say like I've been bringing this into my relationship a lot with my girlfriend. <laughs> and, no. And he was just like, I don't think she likes it very much. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That's a little too far. Yeah. How do you win at dating? How do you yeah. win? Yeah, I mean, um, go set up a game. So. Ben and Scott can see the document. Uh, do you guys want to cut what I highlighted? Yeah, yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't remember who was up. I think I'm up. Uh, okay. So this is a fun one. Yeah. Have you ever looked at uh, your rate my professor rating? I have not recently. I don't think. Perfect. Um, <laughs> I definitely have, and, and you know, I have ones at other schools too that I've looked at, but um, yeah, I, I think I looked after my first year at this school and, and there was like one, one, this guy is terrible and one, this guy's fine at that mm -hmm. point in time. Can I read a positive one? <laughs> Go for it. Okay, this, okay, is, okay. this is like this is like celebrities read mean tweets. You should just put up my screen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm gonna blank out the words that are too specific. Okay. So, okay. He is an he is an amazing professor, and he really does care about his students. Econ 110 is one of the first classes 
some students uh, take at blank school. So he starts off. So he starts off hard to prepare you. The reading is sometimes very overwhelming, but he is preparing you for other classes to come. Don't take him if you aren't going to even attempt at the readings. Fair, um, although, although the Econ 110 doesn't exist as a class. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I just realized that. I assume that's 101. Yeah, yeah, I assume that's 101. Is that from uh, fall 2017 or, or? No, that was April 27th, April 2020. 27, 2020. That was like three oh, weeks ago. Oh, okay, wow. Well, that was um, recent. <laughs> huh, yeah. Econ 110. Hmm. Um, funny. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that does sound right. I do, I do hit readings sometimes, somewhat hard, although not usually in one-on-one, I don't think, but, um, but yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Now I want to look up like my favorite professors. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you get, does this oh, still get used a lot? Dang it. <laughs> I, I think I always look up a professor before I take them. Yeah, same. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that site has been around for forever. You know, I used it when I was in college. Um, so, you know, doesn't seem to have changed a whole lot. They got rid of, they got rid of the chili peppers, I believe. But, yeah. Um, you know, other than that, that that's surprising. That song, site is still going strong. I think you just, the big thing with it is you have to wait. Like, if there's a lot of people who gave ones and they were like, this professor gave too many readings, then you have to look like, right. all right, are readings an issue for me? Or if they're like too many fives, this professor was really easy. This class was really easy. Yeah. Then what are you interested in learning? Right. Right. So at other places where I have, um, where, where I've been in school, you've been able as a student to look at the summary stats of all the student evaluations. I don't know if you can do that um, at our school, but uh, I don't think so. But at other schools, you could be like, yeah, I want to see, you know, on the seven-point scale of um, this instructor gives feedback, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You can see their average scores, um, which is a lot of information. I feel like that would drive a lot of students all towards certain professors and you'd end up with some professors that don't have that many students yeah yeah i mean you have reputations now anyways you know but but yeah mm -hmm. it would probably just push that even further but also i feel like that would cause a balancing act like if it pushed them towards certain professors and the professors that it pushed them away from would be like oh well i guess people don't like me i should like change the class a little bit or if they, or they think that my class is too difficult, or something like that. Right. right but then you get small classes. So that's yeah. what I mean, <laughs> on the other hand, <laughs> right? <laughs> my class is only for the intellectually right. elite. Yeah. Right. Costs and benefits to it. Yeah. <laughs> Cost benefit analysis. <laughs> there you go. Uh, is, is it my yeah, turn? No, I'm sorry, like is it my turn? <laughs> I think I so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This yep. is the last question before the light lightning round. Um, okay. So, like, what are your tips for students entering the workforce, particularly right now? Boy, uh, I don't know. I don't know that I have much specific to right now, other than 
just overall in general, from what I've seen, very, very few people stick with their original job. Um, very few people even like, like a shockingly low number of people even stick in the same sort of general area as their initial job. So I often, you know, even in normal times will say, you know, find, find a thing that you think is going to maybe give you experience with a, a broad array of types of tasks uh, or of types of things that might be done. Like don't, don't get a first job that is just like, you will have one thing you do every day, day in, day out continually. Um, Cause you probably won't like it and you won't have been exposed to other things to help get a sense of what you do like and don't like. Um, so, so getting, exposure to as much as possible, which sometimes comes from, you know, working smaller places or, or just, you know, a lot of early jobs have programs where they have rotations, things like that. Um, to the extent that amplify, you know, or, or extends to now, uh, don't let perfection be the enemy of like something that just seems like it could work for a, for a short period of time. You know, right now, like there's, not going to be a lot of perfect stuff out there. Certainly seek it out, seek it out. But um, your first, your first job's not a career sentence like to that. Uh, so get something that seems like it could be what you like doing or, or that might help you immediately figure out like I do or I don't like I can or I cannot handle working with clients or I can or cannot handle working at a desk where I don't engage with people, right? Like, that, you know, two people could have wildly different experiences with, I really like, you know, eight meetings with, you know, customers or clients in a day or no, I need to like just zone out at my desk doing my thing for the day. Um, think of it as the first job. If it works out for a long period of time, awesome. But it's an information gathering exercise. It's trying to figure out what sorts of things you can and can't tolerate, what you will need in coworkers, um, you know, a boss that you, that you might have, that sort of stuff. Um, and you can get that from anything. Um, I think to go back to like Tim's earlier comment that like there's, there's no knowledge that is not able to be applied somewhere. There's no like, experience that you can't say like, okay, I've, I've figured out something from this about what I like or don't like. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's tough to say, you know, right? Like the extent that anyone is able financially to put themselves in a position where they're helping others with their work, um, I, I think most people seem to find that much more fulfilling over the long run. Um, you know, most, most people, um, you know, a lot of people my age, um, so not, not super old, but a little old, um, are, are, you know, are sort of um, at the point where you start to get into the questioning of the choice of just um, taking a, a job that, that doesn't benefit others. A lot of people are sort of trying to seek more at this point in time and, and maybe would have liked to have just done that from the start, seeking ways to um, help others or help their communities or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, those are that's a really good answer. Good answer yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a really good answer. <laughs> All right, we ready for the lightning round? Oh boy. I'll start the timer. Insert music. <laughs> Wait, but like yep. what if he doesn't get to these questions? Like some of these are really good. Then we'll it, save it for the next interview. I'm trying to answer there's there's this one minute. Is that what you this timer is? Okay. One minute. And we have to answer as many as possible. Well only you answer. Okay. Um, who wants uh, to start? Are we going in the same order like Tim Ben me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That works. Order. We just started with the wrong alphabet. Yeah. Alright. So we ready? Yeah. As soon as ready. you start the timer, Tim. Three, two, one. What is your favorite movie or TV show? Big Lebowski. Favorite Star Wars film. Uh, probably episode four. Uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Pass. <laughs> uh, are strawberries actually berries? No. What is the strangest thing in your refrigerator right now? Uh, Zhug sauce, which is a spicy cilantro thing. Uh, if you could uninvent something, what would it be? Wow. <laughs> uh, don't have a great answer to that, although I want to think about that. Ooh, I don't know. Um, the, uh, the suit. Okay, what was the best thing before sliced bread? Oh, well, regular <laughs> bread. I mean, regular bread. <laughs> guys, guys don't ask off. him some of these. He's so good. <laughs> we'll save him oh. for off the air, so we can still ask off him. The air. Okay, okay. Um, those are good. Right. Yeah, that's a good lightning round. I'm gonna be she honest. Seven. Most of the questions that I got, I got offline. Like, I was just, I just googled some things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People have some great questions online. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Alright, so should we sign off? Yeah. Yeah, I mean right. closing thoughts or I'm good. Thanks for coming, Matt. Thanks yeah, for no, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, good times. Good uh, times. If you ever want to come back and you want to discuss a different topic, just let us know. We're always available. Uh, we're all sitting at home. Suffering. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, have to go, since we can't do pineapple on pizza anymore, like, is a burrito a sandwich? Is is, is the next big topic for debate? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to to prepare prepare a dossier, prepare a slideshow. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Right. Thanks Um, for watching, everybody. Hit the like, subscribe button, share with your friends, share with your family, spread the word. Have a great day. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.